You're listening to the ILEG radio show with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas, broadcasting live on radio.ileducationgroup.org and ionglobalpolitics.com. Right now, there's a, a Russo madness in the world when it comes to the relations of the Western people, of people relating in the mass media to, to Russia. And a lot of it is blamed on the conflict in Ukraine. But as we said a couple of weeks ago, if you go before, well before the conflict in Ukraine, we talked about the Uberlingen crash in 2002, July 1st of 2002, when a Bashkarian Airlines, a Tupolev, and a DHL company, Boeing, collided in midair over the small southern German town of Uberlingen. It was a few miles from the Swiss frontier. So this tragic crash resulted in the deaths of 71 souls, including 52 Russian children en route to a holiday in Spain. So in a matter of few hours after the initial outpouring of global sympathy, the media narrative quickly turned to blame the Russian pilot based on the word of the Swiss air traffic control operatives who implied that the pilot couldn't properly understand English and therefore misunderstood the instructions and had belatedly adjusted course. So for the next two days, nearly the entire mass media, with anti-Russian undertones, blamed the Russian pilot while excusing the Swiss air traffic control and, and Boeing company crew from responsibility. Hundreds of articles, dispatches, commentaries were published that pointed at the Russian Pilot as the guilty party. And an Associated Press dispatch published in the New York Times stated, German officials at a news conference today said the air traffic controllers had told the Russian plane three times to lower its altitude to avoid a collision, but there, there was no response. They said the Boeing had made efforts to avoid the accident. To make a long story short, evidence came out, the black box came out shortly, the, the evidence, and the Swiss controller was at fault. He, the, the, the conflict, short-term conflict alert was out for maintenance. It was switched off for maintenance, and there was only one controller, only one Swiss controller on duty at the time. And the Russian pilot spoke English fluently, the plane had recently been overhauled and was in excellent flying condition. And so it, the Russian pilot was not at fault. And the fault lay with the ground control, the Swiss operatives. Okay. The key thing to look at in this situation was the 48 hours before the evidence started to come out. And yeah, it took years for them to really give a, a real apology. But the initial reaction was one across the media of blaming Russia with all kinds of anti-Russian stereotypes. Talking about mafia, talking about drunkenness, talking about uh, backwardness, shoddy planes, low salaries, the pilot had to moonlight as a taxi cab driver, all kinds of ridiculous stereotypes which came come out. And we saw that again in 2014, before the, the Olympics, that Sochi Olympics, with all kinds of 
stereotypes and anti-Russian diatribes in the media. Talking about how much money they're spending, when things aren't set up right, they'll try to take a snapshot and find it, make Russia look bad. And it's all over the place. You can go and look at old Google uh, YouTube videos and, and find news reports, and they're mostly all negative. And the games was there, it was a beautiful game. It was a beautiful Olympic Games. I came across a, a, a Saturday Night Live skit about the Olympics in which they just put Russia down one after the other. It was a, a woman playing a babushka and she was just saying how horrible Russia is and one after the other. And I thought to myself, if that was any other country, if that were, that was, if they were talking about Israel, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, would be down on Saturday, Saturday Night Live on the network screaming anti-Semitism. If it were another country, they'd be screaming. They wouldn't do it to another country. In fact, I think if they, they wouldn't do it to China. They wouldn't do it to any other country. Maybe Iran. But even then, I think the, the level, if you look at that Saturday Night Live skit, the level of vitriol, and that's just a, a sampling of what, what was out there, it's hard to say that any other country would be on the receiving end of such negative abuse, of such abuse. And yet it goes almost without comment, as if it's okay. And my reaction to, the, to that, and there are numerous examples if you look at the terrorism, the, the terrorism that was inflicted upon Russia in the early 2000s during the Chechen war, uh, if you look at the Beslan, if you look at the theater bombings, how the Russian state was blamed for terrorism by the U.S. and Western mass media, which would not be tolerated during something like 9-11 to blame the victim. There's always room for criticism for uh, policies that can be connected, but to outright blame the victim at a time right during when they're being inflicted by terrorism is unheard of. So there are numerous examples, and, and the question that, that sits with me that I want to know is, where does this come from? And if one would say, does it come from the Soviet Union, anti-communism in the West? No. Does it come from the 19th century? No. Does it come from the 18th century? This goes back a thousand years. Goes back to a couple centuries before the Great Schism. The correct pronunciation is schism, but it's morphed into schism, which is the popular understanding. A few, only a few people say schism anymore, but that's actually the correct, uh, pure pronunciation. But we'll go with schism now because that's the popular understanding of the pronunciation. So this goes back to two centuries before the Great Schism. If we look at the, the, the roots of it in the year 988, Prince Vladimir 
converted to orthodoxy. Now, for Prince Vladimir, it was a rational decision for a number of reasons. The Byzantine emperor had given his sister in marriage to Vladimir in exchange for military support. Byzantium was closer in culture, higher in prestige, and more promising in terms of export outlets for trade. But nevertheless, nobody in Europe at that time thought it was anything out of the ordinary. Remember, at this point in history, Christendom was united. A person adhering to one or another tradition did not cause any real commotion. It was one united church. The Capetian king, Henry I, being a widower and without an heir, appealed to the Kiev kingdom, where Vladimir's granddaughter, Princess Anne, daughter of King Yaroslav I, was unmarried. The king of the Franks sent his top bishop, Roger II of Chalon, to negotiate her hand in marriage. Princess Anne belonged to the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and King Henry belonged to the Roman Catholic tradition. As I said, both traditions belonged to a still undivided church, and Henry and Anne were married in Reims on May 19, 1051, in the year 1051. Why is this important? The fact that a king of the Franks would send his top emissary 2,000 kilometers to negotiate the hand in marriage of Princess Anne, belonging to the Eastern Orthodox Church. And no reports of any negative commentary on the Kiev Kingdom, on the Kiev Rus. No reports of any such thing, and the fact that they would join in marriage really provides some ample evidence saying that there was no negative act, no negative will, no negative mentality toward Russia at that time, Kiev Rus, during this time before the Great Schism. That's important. Because what it says is when negative attitudes started coming back, negative reports from the early travelers, especially in, well, in the 16th century. This was due to religious prejudice. Now, it's very interesting when we talk about religious prejudice because religious prejudice is also wrapped up in politics. It's used, religion is used and was used a great deal for imperial ambition. Don't forget at the time, religion was not a, uh, was a soft power. And today we think of the filioque, uh, the, one of the doctrinal issues that led to the Great Schism, whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone or the Father and the Son, we look at that as, well, that's really not something to get all up, up, uh, upset about. 
because we live in a secularized, secularized society that has been secularized since the 18th century, the late 17th, 18th century. But at that time, in the 11th century, and before then, when this really started the Poloquate and, and some of the things that led to the Great Schism took centuries and gradually led to the Great Schism, that, that was as important as democracy and human rights and democratic uh, society these kind of words, when, as it relates, as NATO relates to Russia today, when NATO says Russia's autocratic or democracy this or China needs to be democratic or human rights this or human rights that, that is quite important in the parlance of today's international relations in society today. Well, imagine the filioque and issues, doctrinal issues of in Christianity carried the same exact weight. And in so doing, they carried a soft power. And so Charlemagne, king of the Franks, from the year 768 to 814, king of the Lombards from 774 to 814, and the first emperor of the Romans from 800 to 814, and of what later would be called the Holy Roman Empire. After Pepin the Short, Charlemagne used that uh, that soft power to for his imperial ambitions to try to reconstitute the Western Roman Empire. So it's important to remember the importance of these these issues and the Great Schism being a dividing line. Where after the Great Schism, a lot of negative reports and early uh, and travelers of the early travelers to to Russia brought back to Europe a lot of negativity. And the early Russophobia was created by the French. Voltaire, Leibniz, they first had a somewhat positive attitude. They were actually positive, positive toward Russia because they were saying it was a tabula rasa, despotic, yes, but they could be transformed and early Diderot as well. In the second part of the 18th century, in the 1700s, what we saw was the later Diderot, Rousseau, uh, and, and Montesquieu really taking on Russia, Muscovy, as, as a place of Eastern despotism with the idea of expansion, that they would talk about expansionism and Eastern despotism. And the interesting, really interesting thing about that is if you look at the European intellectual Russophobia and its origins, you're going to see a lot of parallels with how they talk about other societies, other civilizations in which they demeaned and subjugated and thought less of as human beings. Metan says, that this description, these descriptions uh, of Russian political life would be taken up by almost all accounts that followed until the 18th century. Some added commentaries of their own to spice things up, according to their degree of hostility to Russia. 
By the end of the 16th century, numerous pamphlets were being published in Germany, notably among the Protestants, with plenty of illustrations to revile the Russia of Ivan IV, the Terrible, depicted as an atheist, a cruel invader, determined to destroy Livonia and Christendom, guilty of unspeakable atrocities against the people of his court during the massacre of revolting boyars. A pamphlet published in 1561 in Nuremberg came up with a new accusation which was to thrive in the following centuries, that the Russians' unprecedented cruelty with women, virgins, and infants. Now keep in mind, this is the, uh, the 16th century is the same century as Henry VIII. As Henry VIII, which is not uplifted as a cruel despot uh, universally, but Russia is seen in this, this way regardless. Maton continues, The pamphlet reads like a Spanish priest's account describing the customs of American Indians in order to better justify their sanguinary conquest. Sure of their racial and cultural superiority, the Europeans have been generous with this sort of description in all the countries they visited and conquered, from the Americas to the Indies and to Africa. Russia was not spared from them either. This is key. This is key. That European colonial mentality that, uh, that's really placing Russia in the same basket as other despotic civilizations, American Indians, Arabs, Africans, that need... Uh, civilizing. And that was Voltaire when he was talking about a tabula rasa, that civilizing mission. And Matan quotes Martin Malia, it was in this situation of high tension between Russia and the outside world that the negative Western image of Muscovy was formed. Stubbornly schismatic in the crucial matter of religious faith, old Russia was deemed to have inherited from her erstwhile Tartar overlords the most slavish political despotism to which was adjoined the savagery and poverty of the ancient Scythians, a combination of qualities that for Western Christendom denoted Asia. Despotic, barbaric, backward, those three terms, ceaselessly updated with different terminologies, will constitute the gist of the anti-Russian discourse during three centuries until President Putin. So now we're starting to see the the origins, the intellectual origins. Now there are different there have been different Russophobias, but they are all in the Western world. You don't see Russophobia in Africa or in Asia or in Latin America. Whether there's disagreements with Russia or not, this Russophobia is unique to the West and there are real historical roots. When, you, when we look closer at those roots, we see, we see the same arrogant cultural superiority that exists in relation to, to other societies. You're listening to the ILEG Radio Show with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas, broadcasting live on radio.ileducationgroup.org and I on globalpolitics.com. Thanks for joining us. This is Paul F.J. Ranius, and we're talking about 
Russophobia here on the ILG radio show. I hope you're having a wonderful evening. Now, Guy Matan, I recommend his book on Russophobia. He assesses it as follows. Russophobia is not a transitory phenomenon linked to specific historical events. It exists first in the head of the one who looks, not in the victim's alleged behavior or characteristics. Russophobia is a way of turning specific pseudo-facts into essential one-dimensional values, barbarity, despotism, and expansionism, in the Russian case, in order to justify stigmatization and ostracism. Russophobia also possesses a religious foundation and is not limited in time. It possesses an undeniable geopolitical component. So we talked about the French Russophobia, the intellectual origins, and then the British Russophobia really starts in the 19th century with a clash between uh, competing empires, even though they were in different spheres, it was the British mentality wanting to uh, protect its hegemony and its dominance. And so it looked at Russia now as a, a rival and also as a way to change public opinion with the ever-increasing importance of public opinion in Russian society, opposition parties, opposition uh, using Russia as a menace. And as I said, it was the French that really started with the idea, the intellectual idea of expansionism and Russian expansionism, which was in many ways based on a forgery. It was based on the forgery of Peter the Great's will, of his testament, which claimed that uh, Russia wanted to take over Europe. And Napoleon used it, and it was used all the way up, even after it was proved as a fake by Harry Truman with the containment theory. But it was proved a forgery, but Napoleon used it, and it out of a 500-page Russophobic uh, document, two pages of it were, were uh, dedicated to the forgery of Peter the Great, which was not yet known to be a forgery. But they used it, and it was... It was forged in the 1760s by French diplomats working with a variety of Ukrainian, Hungarian, and Polish political figures at the time of Louis the 15th in the 1760s. So it was uh, it was used to try to paint Russia as an expansionist power that wanted to take over Europe, even though it was completely false. And we can see the parallels even up to today in 2023 with the media narrative and NATO talking about Russia wanting to expand. And if you don't fight them in Ukraine, they're going to be in Spain. They're going to be in, in France. When it's NATO, in fact, that expanded all the way up to Russia's border. And so we'll, we'll talk more in future episode, episodes about the forgery of Peter the Great's um, Testament, as well as the donation of Constantine, which was also a forgery that led to the the Western Roman Empire, the papacy, uh, seeking to contain, maintain control or, or have control over the Eastern Empire, the Eastern patriarchs, even though it was also deemed a forgery and proven a forgery after the fact in the 15th century. 
So this 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 kind of uh, dishonesty can be seen throughout the centuries when it comes to Western relations with with Russia, from the donation of Constantine to the to the forgery of Peter the Great's will, and uh, and it really uh, brings us up right up until today because the same kind of tropes and stereotypes are recycled today and it's a long history it's a, it's a long history you're listening to the ILEG radio show with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas broadcasting live on radio.ileducationgroup.org and i on globalpolitics.com <laughs>